Welcome to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenhouse. We are grateful to WVU, who offers renowned online master's degree programs in marketing communications. And this series is presented by the Reed College of Media as part of their ongoing marketing series. Thank you for joining us today. Ruth, Bonnie Harris and I have been adjunct uh, instructors at WVU for many years now, and we've had some lively discussions recently about the communications discipline, which, you know, broadly includes public relations as well. And, you know, Bonnie's been recognized as Teacher of the Year at WVU. She's also an extremely knowledgeable communications professional and has some rather provocative things to say about where the communications profession, including PR, is headed these days. And I thought we should invite her in to chat with us. What do you think? Fantastic. I can't wait to meet her. Great. Bonnie, come on in. Hey, guys. How are you doing today? So great to have you on, Bonnie. And I have a question for you. I'm wondering, what is a communications professional and how is that different from a marketer or a marketing communications professional? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that communications is a subset of marketing overall, of course. But I also think that public relations and that title over the years has become really synonymous with media relations and getting news stories. And so we've seen a trend in the last two or three years where people really are calling it communications once again, which is I think a smart thing to do because it sort of goes back to the basics of what what that job entailed from the very beginning. And does it include what I used to call corporate communications, like employee communications, investor relations, right. um, brand, brand messaging, company level messaging? If you think about the term public relations, really what it means is building relationships with your key publics. So yes, that could include employees, it could include government, it can include media, it can include customers, all of those kinds of things. But we work more in the field of nuance and influence. And that's where it's really different from, from a traditional marketer sense where you're, you're really driving towards a conversion or a sale. We're kind of influencing the process in, at every step, if you will. That's so interesting. Why why did it change or what, what was the trigger that stimulated those professionals to rename themselves or reposition their their function? I think that social media, when it really started to gain, gain traction in 2007 or right around there, and the proliferation of messaging channels has just created mm. this need to develop more of an integrated approach. In the old days, we had very few channels. And so it was all about frequency and getting the message in there and reach and impressions. And today, it's really about how can we reach our, our audiences or our key publics where they are in the channels that they prefer. And so it's more focused. It's less of a broad swath in terms of what we do. Mm. You know, that's um, interesting. Lily Harder from Compare Media, Mentel Compare Media, talks about the evolution of how we've gone from single channel to multi-channel. And then we move from multi-channel to omni-channel, which is, you know, maybe where many of us are, are sitting today or hope to. But she talks about opti-channel, opti-channel meaning optimizing, which you just said, Bonnie, optimizing the right 
channel based on the audience. And that's exactly what you're talking about. We've had a few guests on our podcast who've been discussing the a growth of digital commerce since the pandemic and have been talking about how it's just exploded and that it is, you know, exponential growth. Do you see that same trend continuing? Is that what you're seeing as well? Or I think you may have a different point of view on that from your perspective. There were double digit percentage growth numbers during the pandemic and when digital started. But if you look at the numbers that are coming out now over the last two years, we're only seeing a drop in retail sales, which is a different way of looking at it of 5%. So people are going back to the stores and they're still wanting that in-store experience. The other side of it, if you look at some of the e-marketer stats that just came out, we're seeing a real slowing of the growth of of online retail and that. It's still going to be really big numbers, but it's starting to hit critical mass. So just like anything else, the growth is slowing. And so I, I think what, what we're seeing is that people kind of want this hybrid experience. I know we're seeing that in healthcare. I work a lot in, in that industry where they want to be able to engage wherever they are and whatever is going on with them at the time. And some people, it'll be completely digital and some people will be a combination of wanting to go in the store and actually touch and feel those clothing, but buy them online. So I think that it's it's becoming much more a hybrid experience. I do not believe digital is going to you know kill the retail experience. We're just not seeing that in the numbers. That's sort of thrilling to hear actually, because the last couple of well, a year and a half, two years, we've really been wondering in marketing communications, what are print media really? Is this the final death knell for them? And both Cindy and I come from the world of direct response where e-commerce mail order was always a sales channel in that world, but it never really captured more than three to 5% of the retail spend, you know, People want to try things on and you know, squeeze the tomatoes. And, but during the pandemic, that grew to well over 20%, right? So I'm sort of pleased to hear that things are leveling, the growth is leveling off and that people are going back to retail. And that means that we marketers now and communicators now have to be everywhere, right? <laughs> Nothing's going to die. It's all additive. And it's about convenience and efficiency. So in other words, you'll see things in stores where you may walk into a Walmart or Target or something like that, and you're touching and feeling that product, but you're, you're buying it through the app while you're in the store. I think that's what a lot of retailers are predicting. And with email in particular, it's almost become in B2B a unit channel because that was all that they had in the last year. So things like actual physical mailers are doing really well. So I think it's kind of going to level off and it's we're really learning more about each and every customer and consumer and patient. And so we're able to really kind of drive towards that audience of one and customizing how we reach each, per, each person based on their unique preferences. And messaging is just such a big piece of that. And communications people are the are the best at taking basic messaging and translating it to a channel. They know how to talk to people um, based on where they are, based on the medium they're in, whether it's a TikTok video or a traditional 
print and I think news, print news may be, may be gone. But if you look at a lot of the community papers, they're doing quite well. Some of these chains of community papers where you'll see your local newspaper that comes on your front step, those are still doing well and, and getting good ad revenue. So hyper-local is, is probably what I would, I would focus on as a trend in, in you know, information rather than these uh, citywide newspapers and such. So you're saying a company needs to have a, a clear message that can then be delivered through the most popular or the channels that the audiences are most comfortable in, but has to be adapted and communicators are really good at adapting messages to the channel. Could you give us some examples of how the message might be adapted? I, I know you do a lot of work in healthcare. Maybe there's something there you could share. Sure. And I think when Cindy was talking about the Opti channel or optimizing those channels, it's really about, you know, in the old days, we would say how many times somebody had to see a message for it to stick. And now it's how many different ways. And the other thing is really understanding the audience. So for example, I work quite a bit um, with public health vaccination efforts here in the Twin Cities. And one of the real challenges we are having is with communities of color and raising the vaccination rates. And so we looked at where they were going, the people that they trusted, and we ended up, we have a vaccination program here in the Twin Cities that is occurring at barbershops and it's doing really well. And it's combined with a little incentive of $100 because we knew that a monetary incentive, just because some people just are riding the bus and such. So to, to Uber over there, it costs money. So a monetary incentive combined with a venue where they feel comfortable, which was a barbershop of all places. And, and the people are coming in and we have lines outside these barbershops. Wow. And that message is just, you know, a shot and haircut and it's a friendly message, but obviously the basic message is to get vaccinated. Um, so, so that's a really good example of, and, and it's a traditional channel. You have to remember too, that you can't just toss the traditional channels out. It's not just digital. It's where are they? So you're optimizing not only within each channel, but you're optimizing your combination of channels. So we, marketed those um, or communicated about those barbershop things all over the place on Facebook, on radio, within the um, some of the churches where these people go every Sunday. And we talked about it. So some of the doctors had it on their personal um, social media. And, and we really kind of went to the places that they trusted and put that put it there. And it's doing really well. So Bonnie, how did you get to that message? Like, how did you know that that would resonate with a specific audience segment? And was this a planned or a unplanned kind of messaging? Like, where did you get to that? That sounds so interesting. I think that what we what we know is that in public health in particular, the messages that really work are come from people that um, many of these diverse communities, the leaders that they trust. Um, have the same thing with measles vaccination. We have a really big Somalian population here, and we worked through um, their religious lead leaders to, to message about that. But really, it's about knowing 
kind of where they are, who are the people that they trust. It's it's a bit of influencer marketing, if you will. And then just making sure that those messages are coming through those doctors, through those barbershop folks, through those leaders in an authentic way. They still want to align with your basic message, but it has to be authentic. Um, so these weren't really unplanned messages, but it's interesting that you brought that up because unplanned messages are one of the metrics of our of our business. When we see people repeating our messages, our basic message, but they've made it their own, they're repeating it in a way that's very authentic, and we haven't sent that message to them verbatim, that's called an unplanned message. And it's a very, very big metric of viral um, messaging of, of the fact that that message is becoming something that hopefully eventually will be ubiquitous if it can be. I mean, everything in moderation is a great example of an un, of a message that just went everywhere and came from a marketing campaign. That's such a, a great idea, measuring the effectiveness of your planned messaging by the kind of exhaust, sometimes they call it, that um, ha- has resulted. And I'm sure you have some examples of companies that have really mastered this fairly complex calculation of which channel and what and how they work together and what to and how to adapt the messaging to the channel. Sure. I mean, in the beginning when when integrated, this is really called integrated marketing communications, which is is the program that Cindy and I teach and met in at WBU. When that started, you you saw it a lot with smaller startups like Warby Parker is a, is a classic case study where they did not rely on, on audience demographics. It was simply behavior selecting the channels. And within six weeks of their launch, they had met their year-long goals for revenue. Wow. And now we're seeing companies like Target, Walmart's very good at it, you know, these larger retailers. Um, really using their digital information to understand their customers and their consumers and where they're getting their their information and and creating these complex integrated strategies. Some of the other ones that are, I mean, frankly, some of the academic institutions have become really, really good at this too. And they've spent a lot of money and time learning how to recruit students and how to reach students, not only before they apply, but but while they're there to kind of create that that home feeling that's, you know, so important for them. So, uh, you know, and there, there are individuals who are really good at it too. I think Gary Vaynerchuk is, is a guy that started out on YouTube, but he's, you know, he's just really good at, at getting his message in the right places. Richard Branson's really good too. <laughs> I think he's done a good job and, and he is able to keep his really kind of quirky, authentic voice going. And, and that's benefited a lot of his climate change work and a lot of the social responsibility work that he does too. So um, he's good at it. And, you know, I just, I think we're all getting better at understanding how data can drive information that lets us understand how to talk to people in that particular channel. But, you know, communications people have been doing that for decades already. When you say they're really good at it, what does really good look like? If I wanted to get better myself, you know, as mm-hmm. a company and say, gee, I, I, I know that I'm doing multiple channels. I'm, I'm not sure. I think I'm doing a good job. What differentiates the good from the great in integrated marketing communication? Oh, wow. That is such <laughs> a good question. What differentiates the, the great 
are the ones that are able to influence organic results. And in mm. you know, in direct marketing or in straight marketing, where you guys have budgets. <laughs> I don't I don't have much of a budget. You know, it's what I put out there. And so you can write these targeted messages and tweak them as they go and multiply them and, you know, repeat them and all that kind of stuff. But in communications, we're really looking at who we're talking to. We know what the basic messages that we want to say, but we're crafting it and we're, we're changing it so that it really will resonate with that audience. And when you think about like communications, people old school, they would have to go in and talk to media about something and, and, craft that message so that it was palatable for the news. They'd have to take that same thing and take it over to government officials and craft that message so it was palatable to a government official. You know, they might have to do the same thing at an event directly to the consumers and translate it there. So in these traditional venues, we became very good at even sometimes extemporaneously translating and doing it on the fly. And that's why you see communications really kind of dominating in social media today too. So the ones that are really good at are almost, they almost seem like they're intuitive at it. You know, they're like, wow, how do you do that? But it's just from so many years of listening and, and, you know, watching responses and seeing what happens. And, you know, digitally, we're looking at aggregate results and sentiment and things like that. And what's, what's getting picked up. And then we, we continue that, but it's, yeah, it's it's almost like being a translator or, um, you know, you, you yeah. really have to read your audience in a way. And we used to do it in person. The people that can do it digitally, I think, are are the ones that are the great ones. Like Gary mm-hmm. Vaynerchuk, I would say, you know, for, for everything he is and the way that he is personality, that's what he does really well. It's almost like he's, like I said, he's intuitive. He knows what's going to resonate, even when he's talking one-on-one with somebody on the street. You know, or he's digital. He's he's really kind of a master at that. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, with social media's rise about fifteen years ago, and then followed by the pandemic, right. where do you see the the tools that the communicators are going to be using in the next few years? The techniques. How are how are things evolving? just over the horizon, would you say, Bonnie? Uh, well, I think it's really interesting that as sort of digital data analytics evolves, when going back to Cindy's question of the good from the great, a lot of the communications people that I see that are able to understand how to incorporate di- data analytics into what they're doing and how to inform their practice so that they are kind of approaching it with the, both a left and a right brain approach, Um, And they're looking at that in a real-time basis. It's really kind of almost uh, some of the dashboards that we have now, we can almost see the flow of sentiment on an hourly basis for some of these messages, particularly when they, when they take off. And that's really cool. And understanding that I, I was just reading an article this morning, actually, about how some of the news media and some of the communications folks are using AI and natural language processing and things like that to create story templates that based on what these learning systems are seeing will resonate with readers or will resonate, you know, and so that translates to resonating with editors if you're suggesting stories and things like that. I mean, news in particular has become self-serve now. So we have to figure out how to, 
how to do our jobs, but how to leverage the latest technology to kind of boost us. In the early days, the funny thing was sending pitches through constant contact. (laughs) The first things that people like, whoa, you can't do that. And, you know, I came out of tech. So I was like, why would you do this? Why not? And then I can can send like a hundred at a time. (laughs) And um, so just constantly looking for that next thing to kind of enable, but not automate. Because what we do, you can't automate writing those things. You can't automate a lot of the listening and the and sort of that intuition that goes into building synergy between these channels, which is really kind of the secret sauce in all of this. And that's that's kind of the magic of it when you think about mm-hmm. an omni-channel or an integrated approach. Brilliant. Bonnie, you have some really interesting ideas around where communications is headed in the future. Perhaps you could share with us an example with all the work that you've been doing in maybe healthcare of what you're seeing or, or expect to see in the future. Sure. In, in healthcare, just like every other industry during the pandemic, we saw the effects of the pandemic and the, the effects of having to do so many things virtually really accelerate digital transformation. And what happened is people began to have preferences for things they'd never known they could do before. For example, virtual visits for simple things, or even the Mayo Clinic is is famous for setting up a lot of virtual care where they're actually providing health care as if it's a hospital room, but the person's home. And so we have these new preferences that we're not going to get rid of because I'd rather do an email to get my prescription any day, right? And so for communicators, they need to understand not only these different channels, but how that hybrid experience is working holistically and learn how to message each stage in what we call a journey for whether it's a patient or a customer or a consumer or a voter, whatever it is, really understand where they can be most impactful and understand in that campaign what the goals are at the time, whether it's just awareness or we're trying to get people in for a shot. And so that's that's become kind of exciting because I think that these, these hybrid journeys or these hybrid experiences and these different preferences within that, which frankly, they change, you know, between generations and as people's experiences change. That's, that's kind of the fun part of figuring that out, how you can best influence that and um, drive the type of behavior that you want to see with strong messaging and communications that's still authentic and organic. Great. Well, Bonnie, thank you so much for joining Ruth and I today and sharing your ideas um, as a masterful communicator. And um, we're going to, if it's okay with you, we're going to say goodbye. And Ruth and I are going to hang around and and have a little follow-up discussion. That sounds great. I loved every minute of it. Great questions, guys. Thank you, Bonnie, so much. Very interesting. Cindy, wasn't that the most interesting discussion with Bonnie? I I just love hearing that what I usually think of as PR being elevated to this much more strategic and complex world of so-called communications, communicators who have a very interesting job and requiring customer and target audience insight like never before, and the complexity of all of the channels that they have to tailor their messaging through. And really, the this is just a whole lot more exciting career 
than I ever had in mind when thinking about PR. I completely agree with you. You know, when she differentiated marketers from communicators and and how uh, the communications professionals understand nuance and influence so much more and marketers understand conversion and it, right, how to sell things and they understand yeah. how to nuance influence. I thought that was a very interesting distinction. Um, and it, it sounded a little bit like our experience in the direct response field where we were equated with direct mail mm. through the evolution of direct. And we would say, no, 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 we're so much more than that because we're so metrics-driven, measurement-driven, data-informed. And we have to evolve ourselves into being uh, recognized as much more developed marketing professionals than just, oh, it's not about direct mail or direct response. It means so much more. They have now been able to evolve themselves into a much broader discipline than just PR. Yes, indeed. I think this will attract a new generation of professionals, and it will also provide better results in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And I especially loved her point that it's not frequency anymore that is our job in building awareness, say. I don't think she specified awareness in particular, but that people are influenced by how many different channels they heard the same message through versus you know being hit over the head by seven different <laughs> seeing seven different ads on television or or right. seeing the same ad seven times which we used to say you have to hit them seven times i was reminded cindy of how in our seminars he used to talk about um, how we need to treat are buying audiences like children who need to be won't even pay attention to the first message and you have to get them several right. times but th this is a, a complicated idea or a, a complicated challenge to address which channels shall we use how do we identify where these audiences are hanging out like who would have thought a barbershop, for example? And how do we even find out where our audiences are through media analysis? I, I wasn't really clear on that. I'd love to learn more from her about how we get the data and the insight about where our, our customers are, where our government officials are, or whoever we're trying to influence. Right. And, you know, so she called it there are publics, right? Uh, All yes. of our publics, right? That we're influencing. And, you know, my head went immediately to all of the um, analytics that we have available today so that we can see how people are engaging and interacting by channel. And most of our online channels are incredibly measurable now, right? So we can see she'd mentioned sentiment tracking. She mentioned some of the ways in which they are looking at uh, impact. Uh, she didn't speak specifically to measurement, but that's where I was headed saying, you know, 
if you are placing messaging in certain media and you're getting no lift or you're getting no engagement or there's no amplification, then that media isn't effective for that message for that audience. So then you've got to pivot to something else, right? So I think it's a very, very complex. I would think that communicators must need to be very data-driven now, and they need to be looking at the information, not just intuition, but using data and your intuition to be able to create these opportunities in this messaging and pivot uh, based on where you think it's working and where it isn't. It it sounds like a a whole lot of art plus science. Mm. Like everything we do, eh? Right. (laughs) Which is a little surprising because, you know, okay, you know, Ruth, you know, I'm a direct response snob a little bit here and a data snob. And so when I think of communications, I see it as kind of a softer, more forgiving discipline that doesn't have the same level of rigor associated with it, my snobbery. But wow, did Bonnie open up my eyes too to say, oh, don't go there. This is a very sophisticated profession. And the idea that you can sit in front of a dashboard that's showing you the flow of sentiment on an hourly basis, that means that you're dialing up and down 24-7, maybe. I don't know, realistically, but that's, talk about rigorous. (laughs) That's going to be a real challenge. And Probably the result will be better outcomes for the the companies that are are trying to influence their various publics. I'd love to learn more about the uh, AI and NLP she was talking about to create story templates. But then I was really thrilled when she mentioned that it all comes down to when talking about technology and what it can do for us as communicators is the point that we're talking about enablement, not automation. So the communicator's brains and experience is what's going to be continue to be required to get the most out of these opportunities. She was really smart. Absolutely, Really smart, really articulate. Um, And when asked about the difference between good versus great, she talked about that exactly, Ruth, how she said that great communicators influence organic results with this intuition about where that media placement is. But it's them. Communicators are influencing organic results using their intuition, and that it comes from listening with the data. Mm. Right. And it's pretty much akin to the amplification word that you had used. The idea that, and the metric that she wants to use for all of the planned messages success is the degree to which they generated unplanned messages. That's so nifty that that it feels to me real and 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 an appropriate goal and measurable. So 
you know, it, I think that will help communicators persuade the finance people and the senior executives that one, they deserve budget, and two, they deserve respect. Amen. I agree with you, Ruth. Well, should we get to our three little piggies, our three takeaways from this great conversation? Do you have um, one to kick us off? What you called the opti-channel concept that our key messages need to be optimized for each channel, I think is so important. And the corollary to that was the idea that customers and other publics are are going to behave not based on frequency of messaging, but how many channels through which they're receiving our messages. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you on that one. I would use as the second one what you brought up, which is the AI and analytics enabling us through real-time sentiment tracking and other uh, technology tools. They're enabling us to be better at natural storytelling, not replacing. Uh, As you said, they're not taking away what the intuition is and the human factor, which is so important since many of us have worried that our jobs are going to disappear and that robots are going to take over our profession in the future. And as the third piggy, I would propose that whole concept that we need to think about the PR function more broadly as professionals mm-hmm. and, and collaborators with communicators, that it's not just media relations or crisis communications, which is sort of our minds typically turn to. It's really bigger and more, more impactful. I think, and a great career choice for many, especially our students at WVU, right? I agree with you, Ruth. That's a great point. And hopefully our listeners will consider that and take that uh, into consideration if they're looking at where they want to plant their flag for future career development. Well, but just one one more thing, Cindy. How I'm still really interested in the idea of uh, what how PR has changed. PR, meaning media relations, has changed and where it's headed in the future. So, how about if we try to find somebody who could explain that to us, maybe from the WVU faculty? Yeah, let's pursue that. What is media relations becoming and and, and how has that evolved and is changing? I agree with you. When Bonnie said news is self-service and there's now a whole new hybrid experience, what does that mean for government affairs and public relations or public affairs, media relations? Look, I'll, I'll take that up with our WVU friends and 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 we'll we'll have a guest soon on that topic. Terrific. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks, Ruth. You've been listening to WVU Marketing Horizons, hosted by Ruth Stevens and Cindy Greenglass. Please be sure to visit go.wvu.edu slash mctoday to view our upcoming conversations, listen to previous discussions, and subscribe to receive updates.